0: My first couple of years of high school, um, I went to to Liberty High. Any Blue Jays out there? All right. Yeah, baby. Jake, that's right. Um, So Liberty High School, my first couple of years, um, I was kind of immersed into this whole new circle of people, Um, primarily my cross-country team, and a lot of the kids on the team were Christians. And so I began kind of seeing and hearing and experiencing uh, this whole new way of living and being around their families was even more of a trip. Um, They just lived a lot differently than I was used to. And little by little, I was trying to kind of piece together who this Jesus guy was um, and what his story meant for my story. And um, because I was coming from a place of having zero knowledge of the Bible, so this was all new, and it was honestly kind of confusing uh, to try to, to mix it all together. I would get bits and pieces from contemporary Christian music that my coach would play in his van all the time, you know, um, all these artists that I'd never heard of and singing about Jesus. And, um. But during those first two years of high school, I would probably say that I was, I was fairly self-focused. It was honestly kind of me trying to figure out who I was and then, a little bit of kind of like how Jesus fit into all that and what it meant for my life now my, by my junior year, I, I guess I had enough of the pieces of the puzzle put together that I felt like um, I could actually kind of make a commitment that okay i 'm going to be on the Jesus team here the rest of my life and so, on a young life ski trip uh, in December of one thousand nine hundred and eighty five I, I said yes to Christ and began following him and and that spring, I began trying to take my first steps of trying to walk with, with God and uh, began reading the Bible and started to go to church with some friends and, and started to kind of also develop some, some Christian, Christ-centered relationships. Um, so this was all new, and um, I made a plenty of mistakes along the way, but my senior year, um, we got a new Young Life director that moved into town, and um, he immediately kind of connected with, there's a group of about six or seven of uh, guys that were seniors. Um, if you guys that go to the Young Life camp at Clearwater Cove, the guy that runs that camp, Ryan Silvius, was one of those guys that was in my campaigners group in high school. And, and this guy was like, hey, <laughs> after spending a little time with us, he's like, you guys need to kind of get outside of yourselves a little bit here. And start having a little bit more outward focus. He's like, there's a lot of people at Liberty High School that need to know Jesus. And you guys have been transformed. And, and besides, he's like, your Christian walk is going to be a lot more exciting when you start giving yourself away to other people. And he was right. Um, I immediately uh, started picking up three sophomore guys before club every week on Wednesday night. I would go early to club, and we would set up and pray, and then we'd dismiss, and we would all go out and pick up kids. And so I would pick up Tim and Ron and Al every week uh, for club, and these guys were kind of a lot like me didn't really have much of a church background, didn't know a ton about Jesus, but really wanted something different for their life and saw some compelling things in the people that they were around. And I remember, you know, kind of praying and just really trying to get them to sign up to go on the Young Life Ski Trip that year, and um, they did, and it was so exciting at the end of that week when each one of those guys stood up and, and decided to follow Christ, and It was exciting for that reason alone, but also a little bit exciting on my part to be to think, man, I think God might have used me a little bit in that whole thing. And I got to be a part of kind of their story as well. And that really kind of inspired me as I went on to college to continue to kind of share my faith with others and help other people come to know Christ. And uh, so these past few weeks, I'm going to connect that back here in a bit. I tend to do this sometimes. I tell a story, then I start talking about something totally different. So, anywho, there's probably a a word for that. Those are story writers out there. I don't know what it is, but I do it. So, these past few weeks, we've been taking a look at um, Jesus and kind of his last words um, to his disciples, kind of uh, leading up to him being arrested and put on trial and sentenced. And we looked at the cross and... Just kind of all the confusion and despair that came with that. Obviously, last week we looked at the resurrection and the hope and the joy that came from that. Kind of what I talked about earlier, part of the hope and joy of the resurrection for the disciples was that there was an opportunity for restoration. That Jesus kind of looked them in the eye and said, yeah, I know you guys kind of blew it, but hey, I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of reinstate yourselves and remind you that I'm still in this with you. I still believe in you. And and so... You know, there was this powerful, uh, relational, intimate connection that they still had. But then what? Where was this all leading? And we kind of get a clue to it a little bit at the end of the book of Matthew. You see Jesus' words to his disciples, what we commonly uh, know as the Great Commission, right? Where he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and teaching them and reminding them of, to be obedient to all the commands I've given you. And he says, and surely I'll be with you, you know, till the end of the age. And now I want to pause right there. Because we can kind of read what people might call those marching orders that he just gave to them. And say, man, Jesus was being pretty clear. Like, they should pretty definitely know what it is they're supposed to go do now. So, why aren't they getting out there and getting it done? But when you really think about it, the cards were unbelievably stacked against these guys, doing that very thing. right? I mean, the leader of their movement, God himself, had just been murdered by the mighty Roman Empire. And you can bet that they had the list of those other 11 disciples, you know, somewhere, you know, in Walmart, like, "Have you seen these guys?" you know, Kind of a thing. So the government was on to them. And secondly, the thought that these 11 guys would take this message to all nations was really just kind of a ridiculous idea. I mean, honestly, they were young, poor, uneducated, unemployed. They, they had no connections politically, religiously. They were men of absolutely no influence in society. And on top of it all, they hadn't exactly knocked it out of the park as disciples either right? I mean, these were the guys that in Jesus's last hours were abandoning him and betraying him and denying him and sitting around arguing between themselves, which one of you thinks is the greatest of us, you know, and just having these ridiculous conversations, right? When they go to the garden and Jesus is praying and he's intensely just, ah, the the weight of the moment of this, and he's like, guys, I need you to come and pray with me, right? What do they do? They fall asleep, you know, not once, not twice, three different times. He can't even get them to be with him in that time, so there's much to be concerned about. This seems like a really ridiculous plan that Jesus had to kind of take these goofballs that really hadn't been that great so far and say, yeah, you're the guys, right, that we're going to do this with. So we know that if, if God was going to do something that was going to change the course of human history, something had to change in these guys. But of course, Jesus knew all of this, didn't he? I mean, he had hand-selected each one of these guys. He knew all their flaws, all their disappointments, and the ways that they were going to blow it way ahead of time. And so he, he just dug in and he said, okay, I've got this 40-day period here between his resurrection and his ascension, ascension into heaven. And he's like, I am going to equip and prepare these guys as best as I can with that time that we have. So let's take a look a little bit at how he did it. I want you to open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. It's page 991. Starting from the beginning there. It says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So Acts is written by, um, the author of it was Luke, the same guy who wrote the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke and Acts are meant to kind of be read together as one kind of ongoing narrative. It kind of bleeds from the life of Christ into the life of the church, okay? And here's what Luke said about the way in which Jesus equipped his disciples. It says that first, on multiple occasions, he presented himself to them. So on many occasions, his resurrected body, nail holes, scars, and everything were kind of on display for them. And that was really, really important, that they knew that he was alive in bodily form, right? Even sometimes when he met with him, he he ate with them. He's like, I'm not a ghost, Like, I have hunger and a stomach and all the same things that you guys have. And here's why this was so important, because most of these guys were going to go on and die for that testimony that Jesus was risen and that they saw him with their own eyes. And so he had to make it abundantly clear that he was alive and in bodily form. And so he does that on several occasions. Um, Secondly, it says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And basically, she's saying that the message has never changed. He started at the very beginning talking about the kingdom of God, and now on the other side of the resurrection, he's still talking about the kingdom of God. It's his passion, this driving passion he had was to create a movement that ushered the kingdom of God here onto this earth. And that's why when he taught us to pray, right, he said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Okay, so he's teaching them about that. And then finally, the most importantly, it says that he gave them the Holy Spirit. Let's look at verse 4. It says on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but a few days, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So we had looked in the book of John specifically at just multiple occasions where Jesus says, this Holy Spirit's coming, this comforter, this advocate, right? He's gonna help you, he's gonna be with you, he's gonna be in you. And he gave them power, power. And, and, And as Jews, they would have recognized this as a fulfillment of some Old Testament prophecies of the restoration of Israel. And they would have thought about verses like The prophet Ezekiel, who hundreds of years before this said this in in Ezekiel 36, he says, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So Jesus is saying, I'm alive, the kingdom is at hand, and help is on the way. And this kind of perked up the ears of the disciples a bit because they're, they're listening to this and they're thinking, man, this sounds like some things are coming together here. And that's why they asked this question in verse 6. They say, then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? In verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father was said, has said by his authority. Okay. So this was a natural question for them to ask, because it sounds like Jesus is saying that these things that were promised through the prophets are, are coming true now, that the nation of Israel is being restored. The problem was that they were thinking of it in, a, in an actual like, political sense, that, that Jesus was going to restore this nation, he's going to free them from the binds of the Romans and cast them off, and they were going to have an independent and free nation again. But Jesus is always thinking about the eternal, And he's trying to get them to understand that the restoration I'm talking about is an inward restoration, right? Not not things that are on the outside and that are temporal. And they were asking the wrong question. It wasn't when is the nation of Israel gonna be restored, It it was how. And Jesus is saying, guys, the answer is you guys. The answer is you. That's how it's gonna happen. There was this transition of power that was taking place, kind of this passing of the baton. And this is just such a funny noise. <laughs> He's over here making raspberries at me all the time. Anyways, Brent, you need to stop that, really. It's getting annoying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, and was, so there's this uh, transition. So through the power of the Holy Spirit, this, this shift is taking place that these guys are going from being... Disciples and followers to apostles and witnesses. Okay? The shift is is taking place. And we see this clearly in verse 8. If you could read that, it says this But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It says, You will be my witnesses. Not you might be, or you can if you want to, but you will be witnesses. Not to LeBron James, for which we've been told we are all witnesses, right? And isn't it interesting, like, his arms are outstretched like he's Jesus himself, right? So not witnesses to LeBron, but witnesses to Christ, Okay, you are all witnesses to this, and guys, this is really interesting. In the Greek, the word "witness" it's, it's used multiple times in the Book of Acts, and that Greek word for witness came to be the word "martyr," because so many witnesses to the gospel died, and so the word came to mean one who dies for his testimony. You guys have to remember that there was no supporting Christian culture for these disciples. They were walking right into the, the belly of the beast here with this message that Jesus had died and was risen and that, that he was the only way that you could be saved. And he, they were preaching this message. They were witnesses to this message in the very land amongst the very people that had put that Savior on the cross and killed him. And their message was that, the message of the gospel is that in order to find life, you have to lose it. <laughs> you have to lay it down and become a willing slave to your master, Christ. Now that message is a tough sell in any culture, let alone first century Israel. So Jesus knew, guys, these, these guys are gonna need some power to pull off that, right? Now most of us have a hard time being witnesses we're kind of sharing our faith with others. That can be an intimidating thing, right what are What are some of our common fears wrapped up into that? Just share some with me. What keeps you at times from being a witness? Yes. People judge you too quickly. People judge you too quickly. Yeah, okay. yeah. People kind of give you the vibe, like, yeah, okay, yes. Ask you a question you can't answer. What else? Human resources. What's that? Human resources at work. What do you mean by that? Oh, HR, like the Toby, the Toby <laughs> from the office shut you down? <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. What else? What about if it's even like a friend, somebody you know? Like you shouldn't be intimidated about sharing this. Like what? What keeps us from doing it? Matt? Okay. Yeah, social awkwardness or just the fear that like if this conversation doesn't go well, it might kind of ruin it forever if they don't take that well. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, bearing the weight of of them changing like it's going to be on you to kind of help turn their life around, and that might feel a little overwhelming, okay? There's lots of things. Um, Sometimes, you know, I know I've been turned off sometimes by how confrontational people can be in that or how awkward people can be in that, but kind of mentioned awkwardness a little bit, Um, and Peter's got some really great advice for us in this. In 1 Peter 3.15, he says, But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Hmm. People always kind of leave off that last part. And I think it's the most important part. Do it with gentleness and respect. Man, Christians, more Christians need to not lose sight of that. I remember my first weekend in college, and I get moved into the dorm room, and uh, I can't remember if it was, you know, a Saturday or Sunday, and these guys come, and they knock on my door, and there's two of them, and I open the door, and I'm like, hey, what's up? And they're like, hey, uh, hey can we just come in, and we just want to share some stuff with you? I'm like, sure, you know, Whatever. Trying to be open, you know, college, you know, all that stuff. So they sit down and, at the table, and um, they start, like, drawing these diagrams and, like, talking about Jesus, and, and I'm, like, you know, about five minutes in, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. I've re- accepted Christ, and, and they just keep plowing ahead. They're like, well, well, you know, this, 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 that. I mean, this goes on for about, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, and, and they're like, well, do you think that, that you're ready to receive Christ? And I'm like, I told you like 15 minutes ago that I've already done that. Like, it was just like crazy. And they looked really disappointed (laughs) that I wasn't gonna (laughs) sign up for their campaign. And then they asked me, well, are you going to a Christian ministry? And I was like, yeah, actually I am, but it wasn't theirs. And I think that really disappointed them. And so instead of there being this mutual excitement and encouragement about hey we're we're both christians and, and we're going to you know be a light on this campus and support and encourage one another it was kind of like oh well you're not with us and you know you didn't respond to my message so i'm out of here and so i never saw those two guys again it's just weird and so peter says you know be ready to give an answer to everyone but do it with gentleness and respect and the reality is this as jesus said out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth speaks, right? That's why later on in Acts, as Peter and John get empowered by the Holy Spirit, and they go out, and they're preaching, and people are coming to know Christ, and the, the Jewish religious leaders are getting threatened by that, so they bring Peter and John in, and they're like, hey, well, you know, we're shutting you down. We, we don't want you to go out and say this anymore, right? And how do they reply? They say, we can't help speaking about what we've seen and heard. We can't help it. And I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Like, if you've deeply encountered Christ and his grace and his love and his mercy and his forgiveness for you, like, you cannot help but tell other people about it. I mean, honestly, that's kind of one way that you know if you've had a deep encounter with Jesus. Because there might be some people in here that are kind of coming to church and kind of soaking in the information, or they like the music, and it's kind of just something they do on Sundays. But there's not this something in you that wells up that says, I can't help but tell other people about this. If the news is that good, why wouldn't you want other people to know it? And they're saying, man, we can't help it. Being witnesses will be a natural part of our conversations. And we don't have to have fancy words or a seminary degree to explain it. One of my favorite evangelists in the Bible is the, the blind man that, that Jesus gives sight to. This is a guy who'd been blind from birth. Jesus passes through town, heals this guy so he can see. It's miraculous, the whole town knows it because they've known this blind kid you know, forever. And so the Jewish leaders in that town, and you pull him in and like, who did this to you? And you know, what's, what's this all about? And this guy just says this, I don't know who he was. One thing I know. I once was blind, but now I see. That was it. That was his testimony, right? And all God asks us to do is just share with people the testimony of what, how God has changed our life, how he's transformed us, and then let him do with it whatever he wants to do. But we're called to just share the story, and I love how this passage ends if we can look at verse 9 here. It says after he said this about you know you guys being my witnesses all over the earth he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee they said, "Why do you stand here looking into the sky This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. So Jesus lays out these instructions and this amazing promise of the Spirit. And then it says that he just kind of, you know, rides the elevator up, right? And he gets hidden into this cloud, which the cloud is kind of the symbol of God's presence throughout Jewish history. And the disciples, it says, are just kind of left there, jaw dropped, just dumbfounded, like, what in the world just happened, right? And they must have been there for a while, because these angels come, and they're kind of like, hey, right, stop gazing, let's get going here. There's just some work to be done, and in her article in Christianity Today, um, called The Day We Were Left Behind. This pastor, Barbara Brown Taylor, described that scene. She said this, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? That is what the two men in white robes said to the disciples on the Mount of Olives just outside of Jerusalem. Luke calls them men in white robes, but you can bet your last nickel that they were angels. Angels sent to remind God's friends that if they wanted to see him again, it was no use looking up. Better they should look around instead, at each other, at the world, at the ordinary people in their ordinary lives, because that was where they were most likely to find him. Not the way they used to know him, but the new way. Not in his own body, but in their bodies. The risen, the ascended Lord who was no longer anywhere on earth so that he could be everywhere instead. No one standing around watching them that day could have guessed what an astounding thing had happened when they all stopped looking into the sky and looked at each other instead. On the surface, it was not a great moment. Eleven abandoned disciples with nothing to show for all their following. But in the days and years to come, it would become very apparent what had happened to them. With nothing but a promise and a prayer, those eleven people consented to become the church, and nothing was ever the same again. Beginning with them. The followers became leaders. The listeners became preachers. The converts became missionaries. The healed became healers. The disciples became apostles, witnesses of the risen Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing was ever the same again. Wow. (laughs) And, guys, just a reminder for you young adults in the congregation today. Most of these disciples were in that age range between 18 and 30. Several of them were probably in their late teen years when they began following Christ. We know that because kind of the average age for men getting married then was about 18 and we only know of one disciple that was married and so these guys were really young. You're never too young to be witnesses for Christ. My senior year of high school, I might have not known that that's what I was doing. But I was witnessing to my friends through my words and and my actions and and the transformation of my own life. And I think the reason that those guys kind of gazed up into the clouds so long was that they knew when they left that place that everything was going to be different. Sometimes when you know that, you kind of (laughs) linger because there's no going back. Right? And it probably seemed incredibly overwhelming that this task, this calling that Jesus had given them, and that's a good place to be because it means that we have to rely on God. So let me ask you this Are you a part of something in your life right now, whether that's a ministry? A movement that seems a bit overwhelming. Because I think it's a necessary part of the Christian journey to consistently put ourselves in places where if God doesn't show up, it probably will fail. Because if you're not doing that, your walk with God starts to become incredibly self focused and honestly kind of boring and complacent, relying on your own strength and short-circuiting your growth, which can only come through trials and suffering. Jesus makes that clear time and time again. When we first started Wellspring, I remember very specifically a a meeting that we had at Devin and Stacey Kearns' house. And uh, we sat down in that living room that day. There's about 12, 13 of us And I kind of shared the vision of of what I felt God was calling us to be as a church, like who we were going to be. And at the end of that time, I remember looking at them and and saying, guys, the, the easiest and best thing for you to do right now would be to get up and walk out that door and never come back. Because starting this church is going to be hard. It's going to demand a lot of us over the next few years. But I think if you leave, you're gonna be missing out on something amazing that God might do. And darn if they didn't all just leave. I'm just (laughs) kidding. They all stayed. Yay. But guys, we are witnesses, for better or worse. Sometimes we're really faithful witnesses, and sometimes we're really unfaithful witnesses. But we're witnesses either way. And the good news is, is that it's not about our competency, but his. I want to finish. I want you to, to flip over to 1 Corinthians. Such a great reminder that Paul has for us. Uh, I don't have the page number, so it's over to the right. 1,039, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 26 So this is Paul talking to a church that's a very young church, a pagan culture, Greeks that didn't know much about Jesus but had been transformed and they're trying to do this church thing. And then Paul also kind of talking about himself in the midst of it. Verse 26, he says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth." let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And then Paul kind of transitions to himself. He says, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. Sound familiar? Sound familiar? My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom but on God's power. See, God calls us and he says, I, just, I want you to be my witnesses and I just want you to be faithful. Just, just share how God has changed your life and, and if, if something happens, let it be a display of my power and not your eloquence to do a great job at it. But just put yourself out there. And I think it's so hard for us because we just see our flaws so easily. We see our limitations. And we're just like, man, I don't know if I can do that or who's gonna wanna have the life that I have or or follow my example. And God just says, guys, I just want you to stick your neck out there a little bit. Trust me. And you know what, when you do it, when you're witnesses for Christ in this world, sharing your story of what God has done, it makes you pray more. It makes you be dependent on him because you know I can't do this. I'm scared. <laughs> I don't know how they're gonna respond. I wanna, I wanna close as we pray. I wanna just share this verse with you, just a reminder for us. It's something that Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 20, he said this, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Would you all stand as we close today?